you're new with us, we uh, just started a series in 1 Corinthians. Great time for you to join us. Uh, last week we talked about the, the division uh, in the church in Corinth and how Jesus Christ is the only superstar. And today Paul is continuing that theme. I had a guy after the nine tell me he really liked last week's sermon. He said, this week was okay, but I really like last week's sermon. So if you, if you, if you didn't hear last week, you might, might be encouraged by that. Um, and, uh, but we've already been edified as we've just learned the ABCs in a fresh way from Brother Matt Lee. Thank you, man. I was really anticipating what you would do with X, and uh, it, was a, it was a baller move. Um, so we're going to continue this, this train of thought as, as Paul is trying to get uh, the Corinthians' eyes on Jesus. Uh, and here focusing on the message of the crucifixion, uh, God's power and wisdom. So let's pray for eyes to see uh, what the Spirit has to say to us. Father, we thank you for your word, what we've just sung. I pray that would be true, that we would order our steps in your word. You teach us how to walk in your word, how to talk in your word. Make us your people rooted and grounded in the truth. Sanctify us in your truth now, for your word is truth. We bless you. We thank you for speaking to us. Come now and change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Vaughn Roberts uh, in uh, the UK tells a story about having lunch with uh, a friend of his at a university campus. And as they were eating, all was well, and uh, eventually uh, a man, a professor, came and sat at the table uh, next to uh, Pastor Roberts and his friend. And uh, they st struck up a casual conversation uh, and everything was cool until uh, his friend mentioned to the professor that Pastor Roberts was his pastor. And he said, immediately this professor's countenance changed. He was a mixture of both pity and contempt. He asked Pastor Roberts if he actually believed in God. And Roberts said, I was a bit sad that he had to ask that question to a pastor, but I said, yes, I do. And the professor then went on to say that he was an atheist and that he saw no evidence for the existence of God, that the very idea to him seemed ludicrous. And as they were discussing, and uh, Roberts was trying to pr pr uh, present arguments for the reasons to believe uh, in the existence of God and of the faith, he said he got nowhere uh, as this professor uh, just seemed to think that all of his arguments were, were primitive and foolish. When he reflected back on this moment, he said, I confess I felt very weak. I longed to be able to say something more impressive to him, some knockdown argument that would leave him speechless. If I'm honest, it was a mixed motivation, partly driven by a desire to see him to come to faith, but partly because I hate being looked down upon and considered as an intellectual lightweight. My pride is stung when that happens. I wanted to say something, he said, to impress him. Well, that's a fitting introduction, I think, to the passage that is in front of us today, how Paul is saying that this message of Christ crucified is often rejected and mocked, considered foolish by many in society, especially those that we consider wise. The very idea of a crucified Messiah continues to seem primitive, foolish, and ludicrous to people. That's really been the case for some 2,000 years. But he also says that to others, this message is the wisdom of God and the power of God. When we present this message, we will get a mixed reaction. For some, by the Spirit's help, they come to faith. Many of us are in this room because that's happened to us. But others are turned off by this message altogether. Last summer, I was preaching at a camp in New York, upstate New York, and uh, it was a family camp, and their grandmas and dads and kids, you know, were, were, it was a mixed audience of believers and unbelievers. 
and every day I was having very interesting conversations, and right before I was uh, about to depart for the airport, I just finished the last message, uh, a young lady really worked up, uh, came and approached me, and was basically upset that I had said the things that I had said uh, as I was uh, at that moment teaching, I think it was Luke 14, just walking through the, the Bible as, as we normally do. And she says, don't you know there are atheists and agnostics here? She says, you think you have a watertight argument, but you don't. And I was like, wow, you know, I, I've had a lot of post-sermon discussions through the years. Um, I, was, I really didn't even have any time. Like my, Luke, my luggage was there. I, I wish I could have had more interaction with her. And I didn't really know what to say. I was a bit kind of flat-footed in the moment. Um, but as I was driving to the, the airport, I remembered something that uh, Pastor Dick Lucas once said regarding those who want proof for the existence of God when he said, we don't have a watertight argument. We have a watertight person against whom, in the end, there can be no argument. Paul is telling us here, we have a watertight person. He gets our eyes on Jesus Christ. And in the following text, he's going to say that we not only need this message to be saved, but we need the Spirit of God to open up our eyes to believe it. That we actually need something more than an argument. We need divine illumination. And God, by His grace, does that for many. Now, back in the context here of 1 Corinthians, uh, many of these believers came to a faith through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but now it seems that many are, are kind of turn, turning their nose up at this message of a bloody cross. Perhaps thinking, isn't there a better way to reach sophisticated Corinth than this crude message of a crucified Messiah? What is more, they seem to feel that Paul is very unimpressive in himself. As I mentioned last week, there were these sophists, these wisdom teachers that traveled around. They garnered a big following. And a lot of people in Corinth, it seems, were, were doing that with the preachers. We looked at that last week. And as they think about the Apostle Paul, they're like, he just doesn't measure up to the successful today. His message is actually a little foolish, and his method is very unimpressive. And what they're very attracted to in Corinth was wisdom. And if you look at our text, and if you glance over in chapter 2, you see the word wisdom pop up about 14 times. And Paul is going to basically say that you who are after wisdom, you need to recognize what true wisdom is. It's the wisdom of the cross. And so he's trying to deal with these people who love their oratory. They were entertained by speakers. It was sort of a, a, a highbrow entertainment. And Paul comes in, and he doesn't really look all that impressive, and his message is about a crucifixion. It's about a bloody Savior. And so let's look at this text together as Paul focuses our attention on the cross in three parts. He talks about the power and wisdom of the cross in this first paragraph. Secondly, he talks about the people of the cross who believe it. And thirdly, the proclamation of the cross. While many look at it as a foolish message, made up of foolish believers, with a foolish method of proclamation, Paul is going to say it's actually the wisdom and power of God. So let's look at it together. The first thing that Paul says in verses 18 to 25 is that this message of the cross divides the whole human race. It's quite a claim Paul makes. Notice verse 18, this is sort of the thesis statement uh, of the whole section. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross speaks both of the content of the message as well as the act of proclaiming this message. The two are bound up together, the gospel and the need to announce the gospel. The gospel is good news, and news is meant to be 
communicated. Uh, unfortunately, there's been a slogan that's been adopted by Christians through the years, often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which he probably did not say, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. And the problem, of course, is you have to use words to preach the gospel. Nobody's going to get on Fox or CNN later tonight and say, I'd like to give you guys the news, and if necessary, I'll use some words. Uh, the news is meant to be communicated, right? Now, of course, the, this notion that we should love our neighbor as ourselves is a biblical concept. But when it comes to uh, the gospel, the gospel, you have to do more than, than do good things. You have to articulate things like Paul is articulating here. It is the word of the cross, this message of the gospel, that divides the human race in this sense. Some are saved by this message, and others see it as foolish. You notice how he says, some are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. But those who are perishing on this road to destruction, those who believe it are being saved. We talk about salvation often in three tenses, right? We have, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Right now, for the Christian, you are being saved by this word of the cross. By continuing to believe in the gospel, God is doing this work in our hearts. There are many polarities in, in the ancient world, like there are today, Roman and barbarian, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, but this is the division that matters most. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And this really puts things in perspective, doesn't it? This really reminds us of the urgency of commending this gospel to our friends and to our neighbors. This reminds us of the great grace we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this word of the cross has come to us and it's had saving effect in our lives. And this message that is deemed foolish, uh, God actually, Paul says in the next verse, shatters the wisdom of the age with it. As he quotes from Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In the context of Isaiah 29, that's where uh, God says to his people, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And he's, he's talking about uh, Israel's indifference and arrogance toward God. And Paul is drawing on that idea to basically say humanity thinks it's smarter than God. But God demolishes that folly. And he demolishes it in a very unique way through the wisdom of the cross. But again, this is a very common uh, negative reaction that we get uh, with the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. One philosopher said, of all the historic religions, there are good reasons for regarding Christianity as the worst. Why? He says it rests on the doctrines of original sin and vicarious atonement, which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. That's the wisdom of the world. And then Paul asks these three rhetorical questions to show how God makes the, the world's wisdom look foolish when he says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Those who are deemed wise, he has left with nothing of eternal significance to offer. It's not that they can't commend things that are true or even good, but when it comes to that of eternal significance, only those who can communicate the life-giving gospel are those that we should give ear to. For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is how we're brought into faith. We believe uh, the, the, the preached gospel. 
as the gospel is commended to us. And you notice that God is pleased to save people in this way. He doesn't save us reluctantly. He takes pleasure in saving sinners. He takes pleasure in opening up our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus. So the task that we have as evangelists and heralds of the gospel, all of God's people, is not to create something that looks attractive to the world, but to take what we've been given, the good news of the gospel, even though it'll be deemed as uh, foolish to some, and keep talking about it, keep making it known. So the cross is dividing the whole human race. Second thing Paul says about the cross is that it outsmarts human wisdom and overpowers human power. And he talks about two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, and what they are after, or Jews and Greeks. The Jews demand signs, that is power. And Greeks seek wisdom, that is human wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, that's those who believe, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The Greeks love their new ideas. You see when Paul is uh, in, at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, Luke says that they love talking about new ideas in Athens. There were all sorts of philosophers at this time, the Sophists, the Platonists, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and they all wanted a coherent worldview that would make uh, life make sense. But none of them had the cross at the center of their worldview. This idea seemed foolish. Further, the, the Greeks looked for what was rational and beautiful. And as they looked at the cross with unredeemed eyes, it did not look rational and it did not look beautiful. In fact, the earliest known picture of a crucifixion comes from Rome called the Alex Minos Graffito. And it's the sketch of a human figure on the cross but the crucified man has the head of a donkey, making a mockery of the whole thing. And next to it, there's a worshiper, and it says, Alex Minos worships his God. It, it was, it still is viewed to many as foolishness, a stumbling block. And this idea of a crucified Messiah was an oxymoron. Messiah's win. And it doesn't look like Jesus is winning with unredeemed eyes. And so to the Greeks, this looked like foolish. And to the Jews, what do they want? They want miracles. They want power. You see this all the way through the Gospels, don't you? As they're following Jesus around, wanting him to do a miracle for them. You, you came to me because you saw the signs, he says. But Jesus is not a genie who performs miracles on demand. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die on that cross. But for many of the Jews, they viewed a crucified man as one who was cursed. And that's why they view this message, as the text says, as a stumbling block, a scandalon. It was a scandal, something you trip over. And this is very similar to today. Many people want God to show some kind of miracle to them, and then they will, quote, believe. But what the cross is saying is that Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus Christ has paid it all, and all to him we owe. Then he adds in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This summarized the, 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 the paragraph, I think. As he says here, the gospel <clears throat> centers on Jesus, and it outsmarts human wisdom, and it overcomes human power. Now remember that the, the need for this message in this place in 1 Corinthians is that Paul's just talked about division, and you notice that this is tied to the previous text with the uh, verse 18 starting with 4, as he's just talked about the division they have in Corinth, and what they need to do is get their eyes on Jesus Christ, and it is the cross that unites us. 
as believers. The cross humbles us, it unites us, and as we look to Jesus together, we're unified and we're built up. Now sadly, many today want Christianity without a cross. Uh, There's not a thimble full of gospel in many sermons today. Totally diminished. A lot of people just think this whole message of the cross, it just sounds so strange. And we need to clean it up a bit. But the gospel cannot be domesticated. If you change it, you lose it. And we better not change it because a a crossless Christianity is a powerless Christianity. This is the power of God unto salvation. So let's keep holding up before people Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And let's, we can leave the results to God. We can expect results from God because this is the method by which He brings people to faith. So let's never be ashamed of this gospel. Let's never be embarrassed to, to share the gospel. After all, everybody in our society is evangelizing you for something. All day long we're being evangelized. Whether it's you need a pumpkin this or a pumpkin that this time of year. Or people, the way people talk about pickleball today, it just amazes me. Like, can we dial back the enthusiasm a little bit for pickleball? Uh, but we, we, we talk about that which we love, whether it's pumpkin spice lattes or pickleball. And what we need to do is work this message of the gospel deeply into our hearts so that it is the overflow of our conversation. Let's commend Christ out of a Christ-adoring heart. Even this week, as you think about people that you may interact with, even if it may feel, feel strange, like maybe you're dressing up, say, as Batman, and, and you have an opportunity to commend the gospel. I know somebody who's doing that. Uh, he's standing up here. And nevertheless, um, <laughs> I'm doing it for the gospel. All right? <laughs> the power and wisdom of God, I digress. Notice here, who believes this gospel? The, the people of the cross. <clears throat> Paul basically wants the Corinthian church to say, to, to see that they were not really hot stuff when they became Christians, that God has chosen to save very ordinary people. So why, why are you attracted to elite speakers and these wisdom teachers when you're common people and God has chosen uh, to, to save people like you? Many in the first century church were of, lower, of the lower class. There were some wealthy who were present. We see that in the letter of 1 Corinthians. But many of them were, were, were not influential or wealthy or powerful, which is why he says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In fact, the second century opponent to Christianity, Celsius, described Christians this way. He was a very strong opponent to them, and he uh, loved to, to scorn them. And he said, Let no cultured person draw near to Christians, none wise, none sensible. For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any is wanting in sense and culture, if any is a fool, let him come boldly. We see them, Christians, he says, in their houses, wool dresser, dressers, cobblers, and fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons, like a swarm of bats, or ants creeping out of their nests, or frogs holding a symposium round a swamp, or worms in a convention in a corner of mud. Tell us how you really feel, Celsius. Welcome to the worm convention, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome to the frog symposium. Here we are. We're here because of God's amazing grace. Paul wants to humble the church to recognize that. And God has chosen people to to shame the wise, he says. Notice in verse 27. 
I love when he says he, he's, uh, he's brought even things that are not. That's what many were saying of Christians. They not only have a nothing message there, but they're nothing people. And God has chosen to shame those who feel wise, who love to be condescending. Why? Why has God poured out his grace on very common, ordinary people so that no human being might boast in the presence of God? If God had just chosen the elite, then they may have included that it was because of their intellect or wealth or because of their influence that they were Christians. But the lowly only boast in the Lord. And that is a takeaway for us. The gospel should always leave us in humble awe. And what has this cross done? He gets into a bit of theology, verses 30 and 31, that Jesus Christ, as we believe in him, has saved us. And he highlights sort of three perspectives on the gospel with three different metaphors. The first one, when he talks about righteousness, is taken from the law court. And then he talks about Jesus being our sanctification. This comes from the temple. And then Jesus being our redemption is taken from the marketplace. All three gloriously true, that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. We stand today justified before God the judge because of our faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says only righteous people are going to heaven, and we have a major problem. None of us are righteous. We need someone else's righteousness. And that's what Jesus has done for us. By faith in Jesus, we have received his righteousness. We call that imputed righteousness. We don't use the word imputed very often, uh, do we? Like you imputed cream cheese onto your bagel. Uh, but but it's, it's that idea that it has, been, it has been conferred upon us. It has been imputed, applied to us, that the very righteousness that God requires from us is the very righteousness that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. In Jesus Christ, we read later in chapter 6 that we have been sanctified, we have been washed. We are holy because of Jesus, and he is our redemption. He has freed us from slavery and from bondage. This is the message that we embrace. This is the message we rejoice in. This is the message we hold out to the world. And so he says, if you're going to boast, there's only one boasting that is allowed for a Christian. In fact, it's demanded of a Christian. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May I never boast, Paul says in Galatians 6.14, in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. We have so many hymns about this, don't we? And they're great to reflect upon. Paul's wanting the church to think about this, to cut through their pride and their foolishness and their division. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Or how deep the Father's love. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's the posture of the heart, isn't it? Or how great thou art, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That's the feeling, isn't it, of a true Christian as you think about the cross, I scarce can take it in. Praise God for this message. 
But the last thing we'll look at, verses 1 to 5 of, of the next chapter, is the proclamation of the cross. Paul continues to talk about the wisdom of the world, this time by highlighting his rather unimpressive preaching. In a, a world that prized oratorical skill and showmanship, Paul's method looked really weak. As he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was not opposed to persuasion. We see Paul persuading people throughout his letters. We shouldn't read this as Paul encouraging laziness on the part of those preparing a message or a meeting. But what he was opposed to was sort of this manipulative, rhetorical, entertainment kind of style that drew attention to the speaker, and it didn't really matter what the, what the topic was. Instead, Paul is saying, I'm conveying the gospel clearly, plainly, and I'm relying on the Spirit completely. This message, which he refers to as the testimony of God, is, occupies his attention, and in verse 2, he says he has made a conscious determination to focus on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul talks about a number of things in 1 Corinthians, but he always has the cross in view. It is central. It doesn't mean there aren't other important aspects of the work of Christ. We should never put like the crucifixion and resurrection in opposition to each other. He's not dismissing the incarnation or the return of Jesus. But the cross is sort of central in the flow of things, right? You have the incarnation, the life of Jesus, crucifixion, resurrection, return. The cross isn't competing with these acts, but complementing these acts. It's one big story. As Fleming Rutledge playfully compares the death and resurrection of Jesus to a ham and cheese sandwich, she says, you don't ask which is more important, the ham or the cheese. If you don't have both, it's not a ham and cheese sandwich. And moving from the ridiculous to the significant, you can't have the crucifixion without the resurrection and vice versa. What Paul does in this, these few verses is give our ministries, our lives, our church direction that we are to always keep the focus of our ministry upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That the aim is not to attract people to ourselves or to impress people, but for people to walk away in awe about the Lord Jesus. John Henry Jowett, pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, talking to preachers, said this one time, what we are after is not that folks shall say at the end of it all, what an excellent sermon. That is a measured failure. You are there to have them say when it is over, what a great Savior. It is something for men not to have been in your presence, but His. That's the goal. Not what a great sermon, but what a great Savior. To do this, Paul doesn't want to attract too much attention to himself, so he says he didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. He wasn't aiming to compete with the rival sophists, the traveling uh, teachers. Again, this doesn't mean Paul wasn't creative or that he was boring. Even in this letter, Paul is punchy, he's witty, he's direct, he's well-illustrated, he's concise, he's at times even funny. He's speaking in his context. He is not like the showboat orators in Corinth that were, were literally entertainers. Rather, he was there because of a particular message he wanted to convey to the world, and his approach was one of humility and, and, and clarity. His method and his manner matched his message. He adds, the way he actually came, he says, was in weakness and in fear. Not a very impressive. The, the Corinthians, say, they're very, really not impressed by Paul, but you read both letters. In uh, 2 Corinthians, they say, Paul, when you write letters, you're very bold, but when you show up, you're just really, there's not a whole lot there. 
I've read to you before, Paul and Thecla, this ancient source that describes Paul's physical appearance, that he was said to be a man of small stature with a bald head, praise God, crooked legs, <laughs> in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. I love the hooked nose. Um, so, this is how Paul says, I came. I came in weakness and fear. You read Acts 18, you see that the Lord had to encourage him in a vision. And so he didn't come with these plausible words of wisdom. I didn't come with the, the kinds of words that uh, you're attracted to. But I came with this simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified in this manner. Why? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you're not a Christian, this is what we're aiming at. Your faith in Jesus Christ. To hear the gospel, and then this is the appropriate response, to believe. And if you're a believer this morning, praise God for this good news. Paul says, I want to proclaim it in this manner because I don't want to just win you with an argument because a better argument will demolish the previous argument. That's not my goal. My goal is that you would put genuine faith in Jesus because that is a power that can never be overthrown. I want your faith to rest in Christ alone and not drawn out by anything other than God's power. So as we look back over this text as a whole, you see a radically different perspective on life when your life is shaped by the cross. God's power and wisdom are displayed in the message of the cross, the people of the cross, and this proclamation of the cross. So what is your response? Foolishness or wisdom of God? Weakness or power of God? This is the message we hold out to the world church. Let it be about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead. As Cooper says in his hymn, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Let's proclaim him until we see him. Praise be to God for his word. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of walking through the pages of Holy Scripture. And we pray that our lives will be conformed to the truthfulness of your word. Lord Jesus, we praise you, we magnify you. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table now, we are reminded of what you have done on our behalf. I pray that you would increase our gratitude for all that you are and for all that you have done and all that you will do. And so I pray you would continue to, to be pleased in us, receive worship from us, for you alone are worthy of all the praise and honor and glory we could get, contribute to us. Help us to never be ashamed of your gospel, even this week as we have opportunity to say a good word about our Christ. I pray that we would take advantage of those opportunities. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.